Well, good morning. It's not summer anymore. So it's cold, the weather's starting to come in, the weather outside is frightful, all of that. It's coming, right? We know that it's coming. So imagine with me that you don't live in Williamsville, New York. Go back a little while or maybe go out west a little bit where it's a little bit more sparse and you're, you're actually beginning to see the weather come in. And now it's not just a matter of, oh, this is a little uncomfortable and I have to turn up the thermostat a little bit of like, now you have to collect wood, now you have to deal with different things. And so what people in Alaska and other places that are really in the extreme territories have to deal with is as they move throughout the region. Again, imagine if you're trying to move through the region, let's say with a sled dog team or something like that, and it's cold and the snow is starting to come in and you've got, you're huddled around the campfire at night and, and what do you, as, as, as like it, the temperature starts to close in on you and you get the fire going, what do you start to realize is out there? I just wanted to do that. I wasn't sure how that was going to go. <laughs> just trying to paint the picture for you there. There's wolves out there. And there's great movies about this where like, you know, you've got, and now you take the last stick out of the fire and you shake it at the wolf and somehow that makes it go away. And like, man, the reality is like we've gone as a family, maybe you've been there to the Toronto Zoo and they have an exhibit there with the wolves where like, I mean, there's some type of barrier in between, but it's like, man, I think you ought to set something up a little bit more, you know, between me and that pack of wolves over there, because they look like they could do some damage. Like, if they were coming after you, and, and you weren't living in the world that we live in and have all gotten used to, like, this is, this is a bad deal. You know, actually, out west uh, in the 1980s, uh, particularly, uh, there was a, uh, an example, like, as, as time went on and all of the the farmers and the ranchers and those type of things had killed off so many wolves. Wolves were actually in that region becoming extinct. And so they actually allowed for, and there was a private company that put out a $5,000 bail, if you will, for those who would catch and trap wolves live instead of killing them because they were so worried that they were going to lose the whole population. Uh, and so there was, uh, I read this story this week, there was two men, Sam and Jed, who were fortune hunters, and they headed out into the forest, and day and night, they actually went out hoping to find a pack of wolves so that they could catch them and trap them and make $5,000. And one night, the very thing that I just described, that moment kind of happened where they're sitting by the fire, they've waited, and more than 50 wolves surround them. And they are now looking out in the dark and see, you know, the little embers of their fire is glowing back off of all the wolves. And the one was terrified. And he looked over and his buddy Sam, and where's Sam Richbart, Sam Red, you got, I don't know. He looks over and he says, we're going to be rich. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I would with the other guy. I mean... Can you imagine having that type of perspective? Today's title of the sermon is, In God We Trust, Though Trouble May Be Our Blessing. Can you look at that pack of wolves surrounding you, whatever that pack of wolves is for you today? Fifty wolves surround, ready to tear you apart and have that perspective. Oh, it's a good night. This is going to be big. Can you imagine that type of perspective? Open your Bibles today. I hope you have your copy of God's Word. We're in Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4 today. 
If you're using that black Bible in front of you, the Pew Bible, it's on page 1232. I'll be preaching from the NIV today so that we can all be on the same passage, uh, the same text there, the same version. U version is a great way for using your phone or an iPad to, to track along um, to be able to find your way there. Philippians chapter 4. Let me give you the background of Philippians. When Paul first visited Philippi, uh, what happened to him there, and we find this in Acts chapter 16, he got some trouble almost immediately. He arrives in Philippi, and almost immediately Paul and Silas are scourged and thrown into jail. And if you know the story there of what happens, uh, he, he's thrown there, he's, he's stripped of his clothes, and when Paul and Silas regain consciousness, they are in the middle of a jail. And in all of the confusion of all of what's happened, <coughs> excuse me, what happens, but Paul and Silas start to do what? sing and praise, sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs in the prison, in the middle of all of the chaos. What was their reaction to the bad day? At midnight, it says, when they had seen all that they could see, when they were stripped naked and thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, what did their, their response? It is to sing and praise God in the midst of it. When you learn this passage, and if you've seen this passage before, this is over again in Acts, it's simply unbelievable Two men who are serving God and have that type of passion for him, that that's the way that they're going to respond on a day that it would seem that God had just kind of taken a day off and just left them out there alone. Their response was to sing and praise and give God the glory. Paul had seen God's miracle working before, before he had arrived in Philippi. In fact, uh, that was the way that God brought him into Philippi was because he had shown himself. There was a miracle during the arrest. Where, where was the miracle during the humiliation of the arrest? Where was the miracle during the beating? Where was the miracle when he was thrown into prison? Where was the miracle then? Why had God let these missionaries who were going out and doing God's work, why would he leave them to rot in jail? But that's not his response. Paul and Silas sang praises to God for the situation that they were in right then. Now when we get to Philippians chapter 4, the situation is slightly different, but not terribly different. Things are not going well for Paul. His career, if you will, has taken a pretty substantial turn for the worse. He's in prison again. People are telling lies about him. Other people are taking credit for what he has done and then telling lies about how they got into that position or what they had done. And in very similar ways, to take a side note there for a second, when we have just come through this very uh, rough political season, what happens is, whether it was Trump or Hillary or whoever happens to fill that, uh, that office, what they do is they'll point back to the previous administration. Are you ready for that? Like, we're going to hear again and again and again how bad it is when they came into the office and how bad the previous administration was. And everything that goes wrong can be blamed on the previous four years. Yet, anything that's going right, they have no problem taking credit for that and saying, boy, as soon as we stepped in, we fixed all of those things and things are going great. Some of you are nodding because you've heard this rhetoric before. That's exactly what's happening to Paul. And you can agree or disagree with those things that are being said, but what, what's happening with Paul is that people are taking the work that he's done and taking credit for it, and that they are trashing the fact that Paul was involved at all. And so Paul is in some pretty discouraging circumstances his ministry in many ways seems to be in decline. He's losing popularity. Not, not many people are signing up to be thrown into prison. His reputation is being trashed. His work is being undone, and he's in prison. And right now, there really seems like there's nothing he can do about it. 
Remember, he was very strategic about he, he uh, appealed to Caesar so that he could be brought and have a higher uh, court to be able to, to, to talk about the gospel, really. He was using it as a position to be able to talk about it. And yet when he's writing this, he just seems to be holed away either on house arrest or in prison, and he's not even getting to use that platform that he very strategically set himself up to be able to use. So that even seems to be wasted at this point. And this is where most of us grow discontented. A lot of things in your life and in mine have not turned out the way that they were supposed to. You may think, by now I should be in a leadership position at work. I've put in the time. I've sacrificed the hours. I should be there. By this age, I wanted to be at this point in my career. And it feels like that is an eternity away. By now, I should be making more money. Some of you nodded emphatically with that. At this age, maybe I should have been married. This was not the plan. It was not the plan for me not to meet someone yet or all of that. Like, this is not part of my plan. I should have had kids. I should have traveled here. I should have accomplished more by now. And listen, those things are not wrong. Those are not wrong desires. They're God-given. Desiring a position of leadership is a godly thing. God gives us those things. Those can be signs of spiritual maturity. Paul, and as, as you follow his leadership, he is looking for a platform where he has additional ways that he can share the gospel. Those are not unhealthy things. They just don't seem to be turning out the way that you thought they were going to. Today in the text, Paul is going to say this in verse 11. He's going to say, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I have learned that whatever situation I am in, I have learned to be content. So if you're following along with us this morning, inside of your bulletins, there's a white sheet of paper, some notes to be able to follow along with us this morning. I want to ask you this question or point through this phrase to kind of get the discussion started this morning. Choosing joy in the midst of anxiety is faith lived out. Choosing joy in the midst of anxiety is faith lived out. If you'd like to experience the peace that God offers... What you see in Scripture, God offers His peace. If you'd like to experience that, then let's talk about some of the things we need to do. The first fill-in is this. Want what you already have. Want what you already have. That is your first fill-in for you this morning. This time of year, the post office receives thousands, if not millions of letters addressed to Santa, telling him how they want, you know, this is my Christmas list, or I've been really good this year, and all this. But I, it, it came to my attention this week that that's not the only letters that the post office receives. Uh, sometimes the post office receives letters, just random letters, like to God, care of heaven, was the example that I saw this week. The enclosed letter was written from a little old lady who had never asked for anything in her life, and the letter said this, she was desperately in need of $100, was wondering if God would send her the money. And a post office worker was so moved by it that she went and went through, <coughs> excuse me, and raised the funds from the other postal workers there in the office and was able to send a $75 check back to this woman. And so there was a second letter that came a few weeks later addressed in the same way to God, care of heaven. So the lady who had seen the first letter opened it, and the letter read this, Thank you so much for the money. God, I deeply appreciate it. However, I received only $75. One of those jerks at the post office must have stolen it. <laughs> a humorous letter like this is a story that's a convicting example of how discontented and selfish you and I can become. 
No matter how much we receive, it seems like we are rarely satisfied. The late John D. Rockefeller reportedly answered this question, how much money is enough? His answer was just one dollar more. Sadly, that response has been echoed by many Christians. We struggle to be satisfied with what God has entrusted to us. Want what you already have. There's some things you can write in here. I don't have all these notes in there for you to this. So the first one as a subcategory under want what you already have is this. Be connected to God's people. Be connected to God's people. This is verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at least you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. He indicates that he's rejoicing in the Lord greatly because the church at Philippi has been able to resume their financial support. They're able to jump back in. Uh, the, the wording he's using here, it's actually using a horticulture language, talking about a plant or a tree that is uh, dormant for a while and now comes back to life. As we are seeing in a very practical way right now, we've got leaves that have blown off all of the trees right now. You raked them up and now they got snow on top of them. I hope that you got them out to the street because now they're going to be heavy to move. But they all die, and then, but we know that in the spring it is coming back. And so he's using the same type of language to talk about the, the giving and, and the relationship he has there with Philippi. He's saying, thank you so much. You were dormant for a while. Uh, you were giving, but you weren't giving above and beyond during the season. But now you started to give again. Thank you so much. You see, it's about that relationship that he has with those people. It's the relationship that matters most. It's the concern that we have one for another. Here as a church, we talk about three things that we want you to do. We want you to find your place upward, your relationship with God. We want you to find your place inward, your relationship with one another. And we want you to find your place outward, the way that we look at the world around us. And that world starts as soon as you cross the threshold of those doors. We find hope. Scripture shows us that hope is found. We nurture hope when we have these relationships one with another. Being connected to God's people, we find hope in that. And that is what Paul sees here. There is a tremendous amount of hope that is coming from what is going on with this relationship between he and the people at Philippi. They're going above and beyond now to support what they might be able to do. He's also acknowledging here this principle that there are times when generous Christians are not able to do as much as they used to be able to do. To some of you, that's a relief. You, you need to hear that, that we see that in Scripture, that there are seasons, there are times where you have to be dormant, and that's allowed for in Scripture. Don't get beat up with a stick when you need to step back at times, when it goes beyond, above and beyond, <coughs> excuse me, the support you might be giving. All God's people go through challenging financial times, yet God knows our hearts, that relationship is what is most important. He merely asks for us to continue to give in proportion to our income. And we've talked about that recently in these weeks, of, of giving proportionally to what God is giving us. Yet if you have a burden to give more, ask God for the opportunity to do so. And he may grant you that. He may give you the ability to do so. If that's a burden in your heart, you say, I want to be able to do more than I'm doing right now. Would God, would you support me as I do that? Want what you already have. Like I said, the first one is be connected to God's people. Second, be content with God's provision. How do you want what you already have? Be content with God's provision. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever the circumstances are. 
Whatever the circumstances are, I'm content in the position that I'm in because I know that God has put me in this place at this time for a reason. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be in plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or I am in want. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we, we hear Paul's story about how he was shipwrecked multiple times and how he decided to fast and pray, not because he decided to fast and pray, but because he didn't have any food. And so therefore, okay, God, you must be telling me to fast and pray during this season. This is the approach of life that Paul has. And in all of it, he's content, he says, because God is at work in his life. These verses make it clear that Paul was not born content. It's important to note that as well. Or that it happened easily or naturally. Why don't you circle them here? There are multiple times he emphasizes the two words, learned and know. I'm going to go back and read them for you again. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned, circle that, to be content whatever the circumstances. I know, circle that, what it is to be in need. And I know, circle that, what is to have plenty. I have learned, circle, underline, star, smiley face, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. His point is that through his personal experience, he has had to cultivate contentment. If you miss it this morning and hear me say, just, just be content, it's a process. You can't just flip that light switch on and just have contentment, just settle it. No, Paul is teaching here that it's going to take time. It's a learned process that you're going to need to grow into. And there in verse 12, he gives three circumstances, a pair that are presenting the opposite extremes of the spectrum. He knows what it's to be in need. He knows what it is to be in plenty. He knows whether it's to be fed or to be hungry, whether living or in plenty or in want. He knows what it's like not to pay the bills and not have money left at the end of the month. He can sympathize with a worker who is greeted one morning with a layoff notice and has nothing to show for it. And that can identify with the same person or a different person who has the promotion waiting for them when they come into work that morning. He's saying, I have seen and I've been in both. And through that, I am still able to say, I am content. What about you? When the Lord gives, it's easy to be content. But what if he takes away? Are you content there as well? Do you see that as a blessing? Is it a time for God to shape you and to mold you? Do you still trust him and consider him as sovereign when that happens? Are you presently satisfied with the amount of money that God has given you? Are you satisfied in that? Are you content in that? Are you satisfied with the job that you have? Are you content in where you're at right now, are you satisfied with the amount of house that God has given you? Are you satisfied and content with where you are right now without having to always press towards the next step? Want what you already have by being connected to God's people, being content in God's provision. And verse 13 will show us being confident in God's power. I can do this and all things through him who gives me strength. Now, this verse 
is on boxing trunks, MMA fighters, martial arts fighters. They love to be able to use this verse. It is on football locker room walls written across the walls. It is cited for every purpose you can think of, self-help guides and books and things like that. Yet, verse 13 does not mean that a particular fighter will walk in and knock out his opponent in the ring. It doesn't mean that an athlete or a team will now win the game because they had that verse written on their lockers or stamped on their helmets. But instead, it doesn't mean that you will be able to achieve everything in your hobby or in your career. In most cases, this verse is entirely taken out of context. There are many basketball players who believe in God and they stand at the foul line and they quote this verse before they shoot and God was not talking about, Paul was not talking about whether the free throw goes in or out. Tim Grafham, it does not matter. It's not what this verse is about. And if we get that out of context, we have missed the whole boat. It's pretty remarkable what Paul is actually saying here. He's disappointed. He's acknowledging he is disappointed in the situation that he is in. But he has not grown bitter or given up on his dreams. A lot of times after our dreams are disappointed or it doesn't seem to turn out the way that we are, we go, well, fine, God, I'll just be normal. That's what you want from me, I guess. I'll just satisfy for status quo. Or we shift into a self-protection mode. You might not ever verbalize it, but you might say, I can't handle getting disappointed again, so I'm not going to try this anymore. I just can't go through that again. So you settle. Paul doesn't do that. He's a man who is disappointed in the ambitions that he has, but he has not given up on his dreams. He faces disappointment without disillusionment. He's genuinely sad at his losses, but he is not in despair. He's hungry for more, yet he is happy for less. He wanted to preach to large audiences, and yet he understands the power that he has of speaking to a small number of people in a jail cell. If you'd like to experience the peace that God offers, want what you already have. Secondly, give what you already own. Give what you already own. This is the fifth week of this series in God We Trust, and I feel like as we are coming into this section of this passage, we need to be reminded, I want to recap a few things that we talked about the very first week, and if you were here, this is, this is a recap, but if you weren't, I just want to remind you about the reality of where we are, about the, the reality of how rich we actually are. The Gallup poll recently did a, a poll about quantifying wealth. And people who made $50,000 per year were asked, what do rich people look like? And almost every single one of them put down someone who makes $100,000. And the people who were polled that made $100,000 a year, and they said, what does being wealthy, what does being rich look like? And almost every one of them put down $200,000. And so on and so on. And so the definition of, definition of definition of rich really comes back to more than what I have. Today you may not feel wealthy. I understand that. Contextually we look around, we don't necessarily feel wealthy. <coughs> Consider this. Someone who makes $25,000 a year and they work from age 25 to 65, making $25,000 a year 
will have more than a million dollars come through their hands at $25,000 a year. Meaning we're stewarding, we are moving, we are working through at least a million dollars a year. You will manage a fortune, or some of you already have managed a fortune. Again, the reminder, this zip code where the church is located, 14221, the estimated median household income in 2013 was $73,647. So that's three times the number that I just quoted you. In 2012, these are the residential construction permits on homes. In 2012, there was 55 new residential buildings that were built. The average cost was $282,800. In 2013, there was 82 residential buildings put up. The average cost was $304,900. In 2014, 84 residential buildings were put up. The average cost of those buildings was $343,000, $343,600,000. Three of your pastors live within this zip code. We are rich. You are rich. We want to remind you of that because think about the problems that you deal with. Think about bad cell phone coverage. That's a rich people problem. You can't decide where you're going to go on vacation. That is a rich people problem. Your computer crashed. That's a rich people problem. Your internet isn't working this morning. That is a rich person's problem. You have flight delays. You have car trouble. You uh, are waiting for Amazon to get their prime package to you in less than the four days that you've been waiting and you're throwing a fit about it. That is a rich person's problem. Do you understand that? At some point, you and I need to cross the line because we're at a point now where we're looking, well, when I get rich, then I will be able to do something about this. Then I will give. Then I will help. Then I will engage. Then I will do something about this. You understand that that line is always fleeting. And if we've done anything during this series, I hope that it is to teach you and me and God we trust and teach you how to be rich. This is what living richly in God's abundance looks like. So that when you step across that line, you will know what that looks like and feels like. I pray that you would step across that line, whatever that line is today, to be able to say, I am going to live my life rich. Give what you already own. How do you do that? First, well, we need to be commended when you give. Look at verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I was set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. <coughs> Paul commends the Philippians for their generosity to him. And 4.14 said that they shared with him in their suffering, uh, with his suffering, with their giving. It carries the notion of partnership that we discussed earlier in here, the, the connection between people, the relationship connection that is here. That partnership is there. And I would be remiss today if I talked about giving and I talked about what is going on here and we talked about all these things and we did not commend those of you and say thank you to those of you for generations who have given to God's work here in this place. When I stepped in as lead pastor Easter of this year, I'm stepping into a situation, a church that is 190 years old, 
who's been giving faithfully to missions, who's been looking outward for years and years. And it was not a stretch for us to look at the budget and say, we want to set at least 30% of our budget to go out. That was not an extreme because we were already very close to that already. And we need to say thank you for the shoulders that we are standing on here today. You need to be commended. Many of you need to be commended for what God has already done in you and through you. Paul does that here, and we need to do that here this morning as well. This leads us to our next verse and our next point. Be invested when you give. Verse 17 says, not that I desire your gifts, when I desire is more, that it be credited or investment shown to your account. Paul wants the Philippians to know once again he is not after their money. Just take a big breath. Paul is not after their money. Instead, he's actively and intentionally seeking their eternal good. Think about it. What Paul's demonstrating here is who gets the most benefit out of their gift from week to week. And you say, well, it's obvious the recipient does. Really? Because that's not what Paul is teaching here. Paul is saying the primary beneficiary of your faithful giving is you and your family. And I don't just mean the warm feeling that you get when you help someone. Paul's something, talking about something that goes on far farther than that. The eternal significance. I went to my grandparents about four years ago. We were starting Renewal Church. I was fundraising. We needed about $2,000 or more additional a month. And I sat down with them, and they, at the end of, the, of my little spiel, and I'd sent them a letter and all this thing, they sent me down, and they said, we would really like to help you for $100 a month. I was like, come on. You can do better than that. You're my grandparents. <laughs> I didn't say it out loud, but maybe it was my, something about my <laughs> response to it. They saw through it, and they said, listen, come over here. And my grandfather took me over their refrigerator, and he named the missionaries that they had been supporting by name and their family and the weddings that they had been to of their kids that they have been supporting at $100 a month for more than 30 years. And he said, when we commit to, to serve you at $100 a month, we mean it. This is an investment that we are making in your life. So quit whining about the $2,000. Be invested when you give. Give what you already own by being commended when you give, be invested when you give, and then be rewarded when you give. Verse 18 says this, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Ephroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul is not after a salary increase. He isn't striving for a promotion. He is content in Christ. The Philippians bless Paul's sandals off. If any church had the excuse not to give as the Philippians, they were one of the most impoverished and persecuted churches, we learn in 2 Corinthians. But in spite of their circumstances, they give not just according to their ability, but beyond their ability. <coughs> he offers three expressions of gratitude. He calls their gift a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He's talking about the Old Testament practices of bringing your offering, of butchering an animal 
and having the, the, the effervescence, the smell to be able to carry through the area, you would know that there was a sacrifice being held at the temple because the whole region would know. Everyone would know that this sacrifice had been brought. Today we are having a meal after the service, a friends and family Thanksgiving meal. If you're not already planning to be there, please come. When you came in this morning, I hope that you smelled the meal being prepared. I hope that that brings in your mind the conversations that you will have, the, the fun that it will be to be able to sit around a table and enjoy one another's company, that all of that aroma starts to overwhelm you and say, this is Thanksgiving and this is what it's all about. But Paul is teaching here that that's what the offering should feel like, that every Sunday, Every time we gather together, every time that we are willing to give what God has given to us, that, that, that aroma, that smell, that feeling, that ability to give would be something that would be just as appealing to you and to me as that Thanksgiving meal that we're going to share in this afternoon. That that's what the offering was intended to be. That's what it should be compared to. And then here's the reward, verse 19. And my God will supply, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This may be one of the most misunderstood texts in the Bible. This is not an unconditional promise. It is a conditional promise. God's promise to supply your needs is embedded in the context of where we've been today. He is faithful. He's generous. He's been sacrificial and his giving to you, so therefore when we do the same, it expresses, <coughs> excuse me, he expresses an approval to our giving. He does not mean that he's going to take care of the needs of believers who are stingy or lazy or don't want to be involved or they're irresponsible. On the other hand, if you're giving it, the Lord expects he will therefore meet your needs. Note carefully, he promised to meet needs, not wants. I remember when we had our first baby. Dalia. All the overwhelming joy of that moment, the first child coming into the world, and there's so much that you're concerned about and worried about, but she's healthy, she's good, everything is wonderful. And I remember sitting there just being so overwhelmed with the beauty of the moment, and my wife breaks into tears because as well as the beauty of the moment, the realization, the responsibility, particularly in about the 24 hours afterwards, we have to take this baby home. We're now responsible for this child's life. And five different times we've walked through that to say, we're responsible for your life. The joy that comes through that. We are, but there's a burden that comes to the fact that I've just assumed the responsibility of everything that this child will ever see or hear or learn. As we raise our family, we gradually give them more responsibilities. I don't ask my two-year-old to make us breakfast, but I might ask our 10-year-old to do that. There begins to be more responsibility that's handed out. There's more things that you expect them to do. Uh, we, we expect more of that child as they grow. And those of you who have raised children all the way, you are so much farther down the line. We need help in this process of how do we do a better job of giving the responsibility over the child and helping them to be trained up in the way that they should go as we read in Scripture. We do not want to enable our kids to live irresponsibly. That's not the way the thing works. Things work in the Wilson family, and that's not the way that things work in God's family either. Spiritually, we should be developing past an infant stage, past a toddler stage, past a teenager. A teenager can now take care of the other siblings in the home or the other people around them 
An adult should be what? Reproducing. Those are, the, those are the things that you notice about those different stages of life. And spiritually speaking, we should also be able to see those stages as well as we mature and as we grow. If you are a faithful giver, you expect God to meet your financial needs. If you're a faithful giver, you shouldn't expect God to meet all of your needs because you're not obeying His Scriptures. But as you are given more responsibility, and as you step through that and walk through that, this is a sign of spiritual maturity. Which brings us to our last point. Trust in who you already know. Trust in who you already know. The Bible says that believers can know that God wants us to know that we are saved and therefore safe. 1 John 5.13 says, This is written that you may know. Do you trust in who you already know? It's pointing here, verse 20, to this. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When believers invest their lives and resources in God's kingdom, it is God who gets the glory. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Do you hear his still, small voice? The band can come up, and I'll give one last illustration. Two friends were walking near Times Square in Manhattan. It was the middle of the day. It was very busy, a lot of activity going on. And one of the friends says, can you hear that? He says, no, really, can you, can you hear that? There's, there's a cricket. I was like, are you kidding me? In the middle of Times Square, you're telling me you can hear a cricket right now. He's like, yeah, 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 it's, it's here. And he searches around, and he finds it. It was in a bush across the street. He goes across the street, and there's this little bush. And inside the little bush, there's this little cricket in the middle of all of this. He says, I cannot believe, to his friend, I can't believe that you heard that cricket over everything else. He said, it's there. You just have to listen for it. You have to pay attention to it. And he says, you must have an acute sense of hearing. He says, no, I just know what I'm listening for. He said, watch this. He took out of his pocket a few coins and just threw them on the street. And the sound of the coins hitting the ground, he said, everybody turned and looked immediately just to make sure that they didn't drop some money on the ground. All the same noise, all the same racket. What is it that they were listening for? You are listening for what is most important to you. What is most important to you today? Before Jimmy Fallon, before Jay Leno, before Johnny Carson, I had to read this, I wasn't around. Jack Parr was the host of The Tonight Show, and he had a piano player named Jose Melis. And part of his shtick that they would do, that they would go together, is that the host would go over and he would just lay his hands on the piano and he'd just kind of splatter on the piano different notes all together. and say, all right, Jose, see what you can do with that. And he would sit down at the piano and he would pick the same notes, the same splattering of notes, and within a few minutes he would turn that into a song and the band would pick up and take what was a cacophony of sound and turn it into something beautiful. You know, that's what God does in your life and in mine. As we've gone through this series, In God We Trust, I pray that it is changing your perspective of the world that you live in, that you understand that at times the messy, sloppy, piano-playing slop that you hear and it seems like is all around you, that God is turning into a beautiful symphony 
Let it be said of our people here, in God we trust, regardless of who is the president. Let it be said of people here, in God we trust, regardless of what the financial market may look like next month. Let it be said of people here at our church, in God we trust, regardless of how much food is served for Thanksgiving meal. If you don't get a plate today, you better say, in God we trust you're going to have another meal another time. In God, we trust when we look at our financial status as a church. In God, we trust when we look at the missionaries that we are sending out on the mission field. We are saying, in God, we trust for that. In God, we trust when you and I look at the street that we live on and say, God, why did you place me here at this time, at this location where I live? I trust that you had a plan for that, and I trust that you will move in a mighty way. In God we trust. I pray that it's something more than what's printed on our money. I pray that it changes everything about who you are. Do you know him? I pray that it draws you closer to him. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we pray that these sermons, this text today, would just drive us to you. Our calendar, our checkbook, are often a great representation of what's actually going on in the heart. But it can be misleading, Lord. So yes, this is a sermon series about finances, a sermon series about our time, our talent, our treasure. Yes, it's all of those things. But Lord, may the condition of the heart of every person who's here today and the other weeks of this series be drawn to you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray that it is pierced this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.